This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation. And we are your hosts, Martin Dyson and Brian Hoadley. For new listeners, each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Martin and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Brian and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations, with minimal editing allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. My journey's been, actually the last five or six years have been pretty critical for me in terms of how I perceive myself as a leader, I think. So I didn't come into business through a terribly traditional path. I had quite an unusual upbringing that education, formal education, didn't feature particularly highly. I didn't go to university. I have learned on the job, which brings with it lots of strengths, but also some baggage (laughs) and some healthy dose of imposter syndrome from time to time where you never quite feel that you've earned your place as a leader. I think there are ratchet points that occur in people's self-belief that enable it's a ratchet point where I'm never going to go backwards from here and I've had a, a, a few of those in the last probably five or six years for me points where I've stepped beyond my role as a design practitioner design leader to become a business leader it was a moment where I felt like I'm never going to go back from that everything from now on is going to be a progression and I hope to see new ratchet points coming up where I can say that's my new baseline. That gives me I think the confidence to be able to start speaking more openly about my experience and recognising that there's value in what I have to say but I think prior to that I've been a very quiet leader and I'm learning to use my voice more. Today you're going to hear Brian and I in conversation with Bethany Gerissier. Bethany's on the design leadership team at BP and her career as a design leader has seen her take on distinctly non-design type activities. And it's for this reason that we wanted to explore with her, her perspectives on leadership. Specifically coming from large scaled organisations which she has a lot of experience with. Whilst we started out with a fairly standard question, I think you'll find that this conversation covers a lot more nuanced than that and that's specifically why we wanted to talk to Bethany. It's a conversation that covers how if we're honest about the nature of transformation it can be very unpredictable and the consequent need to create psychological safety for teams with some lovely examples of leaders who created the environments in which it's okay to learn while doing with the inevitable discomfort and at times crashes that can come with this. You'll hear about Bethany's own journey into the world of work, which she describes herself as not traditional, and she reflects on how that has had an impact on her as a leader and her leadership style, and we talk a little bit about um, social mobility and the importance of that. And I think for those of you who are following along with other episodes, you'll find a connection here between some of what Ola was talking about in terms of the leaders of the future who will take us through these liminal spaces will have had experiences themselves of having to deal with their own 
personal liminality and that experience is what will make them the leaders that will be able to take us through the nature of the transformations that are ahead of us. And I think that in this conversation, you'll find that Bethany draws deeply on that. It's a very nuanced conversation with deeply personal perspective on leadership. And it has some great nuggets within it for our research for the book, especially because of the context within which Bethany has been operating over the last five years. But I hope that those of you listening will get your own very personal insights out of listening into this conversation. And if you do, we would love to hear about it. So let's dive into the conversation now. So I'm going to kick us off on, on that and we'll just see where it goes to. The, the thing that would love to start to hear your perspective on a bit is you've been involved in a number of different types of organizations and had roles that have been about being a designer about being a leader of designers about being a business leader within the business that is design in the agency world and you've also been in-house i believe that you've seen organizations of lots of different types of complexity and we picked up on meeting meeting up and having this conversation but because you dropped into chat into conversation that whilst having design accountability you were also beginning to have change accountability and and i thought that was an interesting moment of change in accountabilities and i was interested just to hear a bit of your perspective of what it's taking to be a leader in an in a or in organizations that are large complex and going through their own transitions so your uh, your career has changed over time and the organizations that you're working with are going through big change and i know that's a really big topic but i thought we maybe just start a little bit with how have you how has what's been going on in your career changed changed or evolved your perception of what it means to be a leader if we situate that inside organizations that are going through big change and then see where we go from there that's a great question. <laughs> so, I'm, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, as I was preparing to come in and talk to you guys today. And actually, as I track back through my career, I started out in digital in the really early days of the commercial internet. And I think one of the themes, the threads that run through all of the roles that I've had in all of the organisations I've been in has been change and transformation I've worked primarily in the digital space, but actually it's had a much broader impact than just digital transformation. So I was involved in the early 2000s, for example, in financial services, where we were moving a lot of very traditional paper-based organizations to start processing their business online. And I remember vividly a conversation with a large insurance company who'd spent many millions of pounds on a new system for their intermediaries to submit business, and, and no one was actually using it. And that was obviously at the time an opportunity for us to bring human-centered design into making sure that we were designing services that people would actually be able to use or would want to use. But the behavioral change that we are looking to invoke through that was the sort of the unspoken part of it. It was like, how do we incentivize people financially to do things differently? Do we just make it so easy that it's a no-brainer? And as I think forward to each of the organizations I've been in since we've been thinking about how we help people adapt to new ways of doing things using digital as a tool design is a big part of that but more recently as you say Martin I've been asked to look after a a change management practice which 
At first, I felt like it was a bit of a tenuous connection. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to hold those two things together. I have a team of, of design managers, design leaders, and we had these change managers and we all got together one day to try and figure out how we were going to build a team. And we spent some time workshopping as designers will, <laughs> lots mm-hmm. of stickies on the wall. And the thing that came through from all of that was this kind of human centricity thread, this notion that you design something with a really deep understanding of human behaviours and, and needs and you try and build it in a way that addresses those needs effectively but there will always be a gap if you're talking about large-scale transformation and you're asking people to reimagine how they do things there's always going to be a gap and people may may be able to bridge that gap on their own or you might need a change management practice to help close that gap in terms of how these things then show up in the organization and and outside the organization as well and it feels like there's a continuum then between design and change management or human-centered design and and change management that started to make sense to me. It Mm. feels like if one part of it is being done well, the other thing can work really well as well. They're almost symbiotic in the way that they work together. Now, obviously, we're talking about digital change. So how do we adopt new digital tools and new services? And then I think about that in the context of a broader organization. And one of the things that I've discovered since starting to lead the change practice within this digital business is that there are change practitioners everywhere. I mm-hmm. work in an enormous organization, but we have business change. We have people, HR transformation and change. We have so many different flavors of change management. And it feels to me like it's a really interesting space where lots of people talk about change, but it hasn't yet been codified into a practice in the way that some of the other practices that I've worked within have been or design for example has been around long enough that it's fairly well established and I'm just dipping my toes into the change world there is a lot of codified practice but it seems like it's showing up in lots of different ways at the moment and there's a huge opportunity to do it more systematically in an organization like ours but I'm learning I'm finding it really fascinating as I go through as well. I I was going to pick up on that because the it's interesting change change management can be a role it can be a team or function or multiple teams or functions, or it can be part of the fabric or culture of an organization. And, and I've found historically that when it is a role or a team, but it isn't yet part of the fabric or culture of the organization, <clears throat> there can be a real dissonance between the organization the leadership in an organization and other teams in an organization who aren't necessarily going through change, but see this change thing going on over here. So you mentioned things like HR transformation, finance transformation. These are things that I hear every day (laughs) with different clients that I work with. Oh, there's a change transformation program over there, right? Which tells me that change is seen as a thing. It's a, it's a, tangible thing and it's a team and it's people and they recognize that's something somebody is doing which means it's not really an endemic part of how they think about their organization and how they're thinking about their organization because if it were they would be inside of that change they would be thinking they would be thinking as change makers going back to Maria Judice who we spoke to a while back change leaders change manifestors in an organization they would all be part of that cycle how, how do you find how do you find you're in charge of a, a a change team change management team do you but you're finding pockets of change everywhere are you finding that 
in terms of roles and teams, but how does it feel organizationally? Is there Does there seem to be an organizational culture of change that includes all of those things? It's, yeah, it's really interesting because you mentioned change as a thing that's happening versus change as a way of being within an organization. And I think we're definitely in that state where, if I'm honest, some of the change practitioners that I'm working with are relegated to comms and training and that kind of executional aspect of change versus actually it may feeling like it's everyone's journey that we're all going through. And, and actually, I'm currently in a very large global organization going through one of the biggest transformations in its history. In fact, the biggest transformation in its history, which has profound effects on every aspect of the organization. This change is going to be years in the making. It already has been and will continue to be. Um, and as we are doing that, we're having to orchestrate changes, adaptations at a vast organisational level. So the need to orchestrate and have people moving in sync, because if you've got one pocket of an organisation that's pushing ahead, they can pull people along with them. But there's a need to try and make this kind of this machine <laughs> move in harmony. That's something that I'm finding really interesting and actually it feels like the change we're going through is happening in waves. So I joined two years ago at the back end of a large restructuring, which was a wave of that. We're having ripples now in our organisation as we as that settles and we recognise the next stage of the adaptations we need to make to be fit for the future. Some of those things you don't know until you've gone through that first wave and, and the ripples continue. And I'm really interested and working quite closely with teams. Part of my remit is helping people adapt to those new ways of working. And part of that is bringing my, our design practice much closer to how we work as an organisation, making it much more intrinsic. But there are other aspects as well. And one of the things that I'm observing is that people who are being asked to embrace new ways of doing things can often be paralysed by this sense that they need to be told how it's going to be. And there's a lot of effort going into communications, training materials, lunch and learn sessions, you name it, we're doing it. And it's good stuff. But there seems to be this sense that um, people are teetering on the brink of being able to jump in and do it themselves. And they just haven't quite got the confidence that they mm. know everything they need to know. And one of the things that I'm thinking about and working with a number of people in the organization who are acting more as coaches is how do you get people comfortable with this idea that they are the change that they can't wait for someone else to finish doing it before they get involved hmm. and really there's a huge amount of um, implications around things like psychological safety and freedom to experiment and, and all of those good things but this notion that you don't have to know how it's going to be you can learn it by doing it and we're going to fail many times and it's not going to be perfect. Um, I remember actually vividly about six months, maybe more ago, one of our very senior leaders came in with a whole suite of new ceremonies and, and things that we were going to do to drive the new model that we were working towards. And we started doing a, a particular ceremony that he had obviously had a very clear idea of how it needed to run and he'd set some structure around it. But then he stood back and said, it's going to be choppy to start with. We're just going to do it. And the first one is going to be an absolute car crash. And that's okay. We're going to do it. 
And then we're going to take 10 minutes at the end of the session. and We're going to talk about how it went. And next time we're going to do it again. And it's going to be a bit better next time. And calling out and acknowledging that kind of sense that you don't have all the answers. But until you get into it and you are part of that change, you you can't progress. And, and there, there does seem to be this sort of invisible line that some people are teetering on the edge of. And I see it in our organisation. of How do you let give people the confidence that they can just give it a go and, and they can be the change themselves? It's, it's fascinating because there was um, one, of the, one of the things that, so Brian and I have experimented with articulating things, saying things and saying, is this something we think, we believe, is there evidence for this? So one of the pithy statements I think I've made in the past in relation to this exploration is that people, and I'm going to use very generic and vague terms, people at an executive level often say, I'm very comfortable with change. And they're comfortable with change because they've planned out a three-year program of transformation and they know that they're going to get a big blue spangly box at the end of it and they're going to spend 10 million on it or whatever or billions whatever it is but i don't think that is being comfortable with change you've laid out a plan that means that you don't have to think about it and you but then life happens so one of the things i was thinking of as you were talking through that is and brian i think this relates to the idea of lot of, of systems within systems and where things meet and the edges of things it sounds like there are programs of work in which people need to get I need to get involved in being in action for the change to happen. Are those in a large organization, are those still what the programs of work has been planned out over years or how, at what level does that, we will work it out by being in action still happen? Is it down once we've decided this is a thing we're doing, we'll let you decide how to do it. At what levels does it does that propagate up? Um, is there a point in time where somebody says, no, this is what we're... At level closest to the board, we know it's these five things and that's not changing because otherwise... Who's yeah. most comfortable with that? We'll just work it out as we go. <laughs> yeah, to be honest with you, I think some of that question is probably above my pay grade because I just, I don't have super clarity on what's going on at board level. What I do know is that certainly in the organisation I'm in at the moment, there is a real, very clear objective of where we need Mm. to get to that's been articulated and broken down into component parts and so in terms of our strategy Mm. um, I'm at BP we're transforming from an oil company to an energy company Mm. and that has huge implications that ripple down through the organization but that's the biggest change you can imagine for an organization Mm. of our size our our entire our identity is changing Mm -hmm. that's been set out very clearly which I think is very helpful because that gives us that kind of North Star. Where are we pointing towards? In terms of how we do that, I think certainly I mentioned there was a big transformation a couple of years ago. It started a few years ago. And I think there was some clarity at that point in terms of what the organisation was going to look like to be able to address that transformation. I think it's natural that as you get into it, things never quite pan out how you expect. And that's where I talk about the ripples. And I think we'll continue to have ripples. And I think those are smaller iterations. And I think at every level, the way I see it, we're moving much more towards things like OKRs for setting goals. I'm seeing much more alignment in terms of the outcomes and the objectives, and then freedom to iterate on the best way to deliver that. 
I'd say that's quite a new thing for us as well. It's not something that was widespread when I joined the organisation two years ago. But this notion that you can keep iterating on how we can get this thing working well, as long as we're all clear on what we're trying to drive towards. So I think there's a probably a fairly healthy mixture of structure, clarity and alignment, and then freedom to find the best way to do that. Because the other thing is that you have very smart people coming in with very good ideas about how things should work but every organization has its own quirks and unique kind of characteristics and so until you start applying these things you can't possibly know I do think though you you mentioned about sort of people being saying they're comfortable with change when they have a big plan in front of them I think that to me is when, when I think about change actually I think about ambiguity and uncertainty yeah you can't be doing a real genuine transformation if you know exactly where you're getting to and how long it's going to take and what the steps are to get there. You're probably thinking about it in a much more modest way than I would suggest is true transformation. There has to be an element of uncertainty and ambiguity in that. Otherwise, you're probably not stretching that far. So when I talk to people who are coming into the organisation and we, we vet them and try and get a sense in the interview process about their level of comfort with ambiguity because I think that's probably a bit more meaningful than change change could be minor or massive and it is a it's one word that can mean so many different things yeah there's there's almost a sense that you need people who are comfortable meandering wandering for a bit because a map doesn't necessarily work for everybody And of course, there are famous explorers who set out to find specific things and found other things in the process just by being a few degrees off course and then having to deal with that. I think, interestingly, this change when it's mapped out, even if it's mapped out in an organization, doesn't mean that everybody who views that map has bought into it. And believes in it. And we all know that legacy organizations, large, global, long lasting, they've been around for a while organizations also have a lot of legacy mindset in them. And so change tends to disrupt people's view of status quo. (laughs) And even though there are people who say, oh, we need to change, when the rubber hits the road and change comes, they aren't necessarily au fait with change. So I kind of wonder, there's a real, there's a real mindset shift. So there, anytime you start to go into a transformation activity, there will, there will be people who are going to be very resistant to that activity because change is just uncomfortable at a human level for a lot of people. There certain, you were saying that you're looking for people who, who, who are comfortable with ambiguity, right? But the reality is, and I've got a lot of friends who could never do what I do (laughs) going into organizations that are a bit chaotic and upside down and and things need, there's no clear path through when you start. You have to define that path as you go. And I've got friends who say, how can you do that? How do you, how are you able to even think about engaging with that? It just seems so, it seems so difficult, so vast. And I think it's just a mindset thing. So finding you're going to, you're going to inherit people in an organization always that are just so resistant to change 
that even if even if the transformation map itself needs to change up because you run into things that you hadn't encountered, the people that underpin it need to make it work somehow. They need to help you on that path. So how do you find balancing the fact that roadmaps will change and the people that are responsible for delivering those roadmaps down on the ground themselves may be resistant to change even at a base level. So even so the roadmap itself changing is uncomfortable to them. The transformation process itself is uncomfortable to them. <laughs> and it just throws tons of fear and ambiguity into the process. So you're managing in that culture. How do you find that navigating that? So I think part of the reason that people struggle with change is the loss of control. And so going back to that senior leader who says that they're comfortable with change, it's much easier to deal with change if you feel that you have some control over it. So if you can see what's going on and you have input and you can help orchestrate it and you feel like you're being heard in that process, then actually it can be really exciting. It could be quite fun. If you're down on the ground and things are being done to you and you have absolutely no visibility of why or what's coming next, that's incredibly uncomfortable. Even for the most resilient individual, that's not a nice place to be. I was actually interviewing somebody the other day and I was talking about ambiguity with with her and, and she said to me, really interesting, it struck me, she said, I don't like ambiguity, but I'm good with it because I've got ways of organising it. So She's, I'm actually really comfortable going into lots of uncertainty and lots of grey areas because I've got methods that help me organise it so that it's manageable. I actually, it made me wonder, does anyone really like ambiguity? Probably not. I think some people might be better at organising it than others. And so that ability to be able to go, right, as you say, Brian, going into this organisation, it's all really chaotic. That can be really overwhelming. But if you've got experience and tools and a mindset that allows you to break it into manageable parts you can start to get some control over it you start to get your arms around it and it feels manageable so I think there's something there that's quite interesting it's about how we give people the the tools to be able to feel like they have some element of control and clearly there are things we can do about good communications programs making sure everyone feels aligned as to why we're doing things building the case for change letting people see what's coming etc but there's something at a very personal level about how well can you compartmentalize and organize things in your head so that they feel manageable and not scary and chaotic i love that i think i just when you said who really is comfortable with ambiguity or uncertainty at that level i i love what that person said because i think that represents a really good midpoint of on one side you do have i immediately thought about the extremely creative end of the spectrum and brian what you were saying about you being comfortable with the unknown creates more opportunities very few people are at that end where they actively seek out uncertainty because they create in that space yeah and we that, that's there's a really important place for those people in society in culture and also in business but they're very few who genuinely go into <clears throat> the chaos because they're totally not attached to what comes next right the vast majority of us are entirely attached to what comes next. <laughs> so you're that person you talked about there, he said, I'm not comfortable with ambiguity. I, I'm with you, Bethany. I think that most of us aren't. 
And most of us, even in design in the creative space, are not either. The people who truly are um, are few and far between. So there's got to be some spectrum between like when you use that unbounded creativity. And I think some what it made me think about, I think, is that sometimes we overuse the word creativity and we over-index into some of these design skills. Now we're re- And I've said this before, designers are really comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and change. Right. I, I'm, I think maybe what that person said was probably more true. Designers have more tools and mindsets to organize and manage ambiguity and uncertainty. Yes. And actually, the beauty, of the, process, that. the beauty of the design process, I, I've always considered myself quite artistic, but I'm, I could never be an artist because I'm terrible with a blank sheet of paper. I've been a designer because I like working with problems and unpicking them. And I like having constraints, actually. That makes me happy. <laughs> I find that really exciting. And even a designer that likes going into these areas of uncertainty and chaos I would posit, and it may be just me, maybe others don't feel this, but the thrill is actually getting from that chaotic perspective to a point of clarity. That's the fun thing. As you say, there may be people who inhabit that that chaotic space and really thrive in it. And you're right, there are people. But for the most part, the fun is boiling it down, organising it, clarifying it to the point where you've got something really powerful. That's the fun thing. So it's more that the change, the uncertainty, the ambiguity is an input to some really exciting process with an incredible output rather than it being the end in itself, I think. Yeah, and then for some of those people who, and you need all sorts of different types of people in a large organisation, you need people who are going to be able to run, conceive of, look at change, build, run. And you. there's only a certain amount of disruption and change you can do during run and keep that going so there's it sounds like there's probably some gradation of exposure and overlap between different types so if you're able to get, bring some clarity to that answer some clarity to that uncertainty that's a point in which you can start to engage people who would like more clarity but make them part of that process so they have control and then they can take that and turn that into something that they own and run there's like this I don't know, movement between uncertainty to clarity. Yeah, that's interesting. What have you what have you come to think about yourself as a as a leader who's had evolving and changing responsibilities and accountabilities, like role titles and you've been in different organizations? What are some of the things that you've learned about what it means to be a leader and to the last five to six years, I feel like shit's got real and everything's changed a lot, right? The pace has, has changed. What's your journey been like over the last six years? Just your identity as a leader? My journey's been, actually, the last five or six years have been pretty critical for me in terms of how I perceive myself as a leader, I think. So I didn't come into business through a terribly traditional path. I had quite an unusual upbringing that education, formal education, didn't feature particularly highly. I didn't go to university. I have learned on the job, which brings with it lots of strengths, but also some baggage and some healthy dose of imposter syndrome from time to time where you never quite feel that you've earned your place as a leader. I think there are 
ratchet points that occur in people's self-belief that enable it's a ratchet point where I'm never going to go backwards from here and I've had a, a, a few of those in the last probably five or six years since having my children I took some time out of work and I came back and, and, and started working in-house having worked with large corporates as a consultant for many years started taking in-house roles and Actually, I got involved in the social mobility network at um, at my current company and started learning about some of the mindsets that people who have disadvantaged backgrounds bring to their work and how that can affect them. And this notion of a ratchet point, they don't call it that. They call it sort of self moments of self-actualization or something. I forget. Anyway, for me, points where I've stepped beyond my role as a design practitioner, design leader to become a business leader. And I've had some great sponsorship and encouragement in some of those processes. But for example, in my previous role, I was running a design practice and somebody suggested to me, somebody in a senior position, that an acquisition of another company might be worth looking into. And I found a company and I negotiated to buy them and I got my employers to agree to fund the acquisition. And for me, that was a real ratchet point in my career where I suddenly perceived myself not to be a design practitioner or a design leader anymore, but a business leader. And there have been a couple of others, but that's probably one of the most significant where I pulled off something that I would never have thought I could possibly have pulled off. It sounds quite simple when I put it like that, but actually in the context of the organisation, it was a big leap for the organisation to take as well. And I was able to drive that. And I was finding myself being listened to and consulted by very senior people in a large PLC on things that I didn't feel terribly well equipped to to comment on. But it it was a moment where I felt like I'm never going to go back from that. Everything from now on is going to be a progression. And I hope to see new ratchet points coming up where I can say, that's my new baseline. That gives me, I think, the confidence to be able to start speaking more openly about my experience and recognising that there's value in what I have to say. But I think prior to that, I've been a very quiet leader and I'm learning to use my voice more. But I hope that the kind of leadership that I bring is still fairly modest and more about empowering and enabling the people around me to to thrive and to progress. And again, coming back to this question of leading through change, there's something about humility and authenticity and admitting that you don't have all the answers and that this is uncomfortable as a leader that I think is incredibly important in creating a culture where people feel that it's okay, that it's not I like to walk alongside people. I think the thing that you can do as a leader with the benefit of experience, and and the other thing actually is you get higher up in an organisation, it's about visibility as well. What can I see from my vantage point, which is just by dint of my grade, honestly. (laughs) The things that you get invited into, the communications that you see, the information you receive is different. So my job is to make that visible in an appropriate way, but to the people around me so that they feel informed and involved and engaged and so there's things that I can do from my vantage point to the benefit of everyone around me and I consider my role as a leader really to be able to create the environment to allow people to do what they need to do 
I'm actually doing very little day to day. Don't tell my boss this. But in terms of actual tangible outputs, what do I do? I have a lot of meetings. I talk to a lot of people. And I was I read the the book uh, Radical Candor recently. And something that really struck me in that book was there was a passage which talked about people management and how for a lot of people who are practitioners by first and foremost, they see people management as a, a thing that sits on the side of their job and sort of a bit of a distraction from the real work. And she posits in the book that actually as a people manager, as a leader, as a boss, your first and foremost, your job is to work with the people around you and make sure that they're set up for success. Everything else is secondary to that. And that was a real kind of good kind of moment for me to recognize. So now when people ping me and say, I'm really sorry, I know you haven't got time for this. I'm like, actually, no, everything else can wait. This is what I'm here for. How can I help you? And then I get back to whatever it was I was doing. And it's not always easy, but it's so much about enabling the people around you, giving them clarity and transparency and just leading with authenticity. I have my weaknesses. I'm a massive introvert. And I told my team one time, if I come into the office and I don't make eye contact, don't say hello to everyone, please don't take it personally. I'm an introvert. I find it really difficult sometimes. And just getting comfortable with this idea that I can talk about this. I can talk about my background. I can talk about the fact that I've got very little education. And that's okay. I spent a long time pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. And I think being in a big organisation has been great for that. This the, There's a real culture of bring your whole self to work and be authentic with it, which I'm really enjoying, actually. That's, that's, really, that's a really powerful example and story, actually. I, I was just reflecting, I was at an event yesterday called Catalyst, run by a company called Create Future up here in Edinburgh. And one of the founders was talking with a, a lady called Joanna House, who's a coach, and they were talking about courageous leadership. And there's a lot of what they expressed about courageous leadership that I hear in your story. One of the things they were talking about is how little you do <laughs> in output and outcome and how that actually creates like this sense of, oh my gosh, I must seem like I'm doing more because otherwise people will find out that I'm not doing anything and then I'll, they'll get rid of me. They won't need me. And how that, if you let that take over, that gets in the way of you enabling people, which is what you were saying is the primary role. And there was a quote, I think, I can't remember what the original attribution is. It may well have been from Radical Candor. I can't, I might have been from somewhere else. I'm, I'm most powerful when I give my power away. And I, that, as you were talking there, that, that quote struck me as being reflective of your story as well. The, what's been your, what's been your experience uh, over the last five or six years about how others are reacting to that maybe not within the team because I can imagine if I may and, and tell me if that's not the case but within the teams that you've been running that's an enabling and empowering thing that should be a positive experience for them even if it's not usual I imagine sometimes people go really do you re are you really being like that you know because uh, <laughs> they haven't had a positive experience of it before but I'm interested with and I want to be sensitive to the fact that you currently work somewhere so you may want to draw on other experiences and that's okay. But what is, are there other leaders that you've seen who are also doing this? Are you finding that there is a, a general shift? Is it still pockets? How's, 
I hear a lot of people talking about this. I'm seeing and meeting a lot more leaders who are trying to be like this. How far are we on this journey to to this kind of more positive, empowering leadership? And 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 how is it? How is that change going at at the vantage points that you've been at? <laughs> yeah. So I think it probably doesn't surprise you if I say that it's a real mixed bag, and I am drawing on yeah. more than my current employment. Just thinking back over the last yeah. recent period. I think I've encountered great bosses who have given me empowerment to reach those ratchet points that I mentioned. And I feel like I'm sharing the love. You learn from what's a great experience for me as an employee as well. I've seen great examples of that. I also see some real bad behavior, if I'm honest. And again, if you think about the context of organizations in times of great change, there are some behaviours that sometimes emerge that become very mm-hmm. territorial mm-hmm. and people feel threatened and they don't want to admit that they don't know everything because they don't feel safe. I think psychological safety comes into this hugely and that's a that's an environment that can be set from the top down, but it doesn't always land with everyone. I think people's human instincts sometimes take them in different directions But I do think also within an organization, there are certain forcing functions that you can introduce that kind of drive those behavior changes. I mentioned OKRs as a goal setting framework. It's uh, in some organizations, it's old hat, but in many big, large legacy organizations, it's a fairly new concept that you're moving away from this idea of individual performance contracts that have very binary, did you do this thing or not measures in them to this idea that we're shooting for these I used to my when I did the acquisition we called it a BHAG big hairy audacious goals those kind of big things and Mm -hmm. if you're able to demonstrate that you your team your department your organization whichever kind of altitude you go at if you can demonstrate that you're helping to drive those big things that you're trying to drive it doesn't matter whether it's your name on a presentation or mine Mm -hmm. that's that can be helped by some of those forcing mm-hmm. functions, be they the ceremonies that you have, the way that you celebrate success, the way you measure whether you've achieved outcomes, how quickly you're able to sunset work that's not performing, mm-hmm. actually pivot and say, we're not going to do that thing anymore. And we're going to celebrate the team that tried it because we've learned from it and we're going to go and do something else. There's some really big kind of uncomfortable things that come from that idea of we are in service of the out of the goal the purpose the mission and the the way that we achieve that is up for grabs that then makes it I think people feel less attached to their own credit profile Mm -hmm. reputation etc and it becomes much more of a collective endeavor but as I say individual kind of drivers still come to the fore and I'm sure I'm guilty of it as well you get invited to present at a large conference on something that actually your team somebody in your team has done do you step back and let them take the spotlight instead or do you say actually I'm the leader so I'm going to go and present and I'll give them a credit at the end those kind of things Mm -hmm. it's not easy and I constantly have to check myself and I hope that my team feel that they can check me when I get it wrong as well and I think that's just an important part of self-growth But in terms of what I see broadly in corporations, I think there's a real mixture of positive things that I'm seeing coming through. There's first, there's this kind of idea of authentic leadership at the very top of the tree. So CEOs who are bringing themselves and all their vulnerabilities to work and role modeling that. 
and the way that we hire people for their values and their behaviours. And that's as important, if not more so, than their hard skills. That I think that is changing, certainly in large corporates. I think there's much more focus on how we do things as well as what we do than there has been in the past. And then, as I say, these great, I'm a big reader of business theory books because there's some great tools that are being more commonplace and widespread in in organisations that sort of drive that. They create the kind of mechanisms by which people can embrace new styles of leadership, I think. This is one of the things that, you know, in terms of trying to get, trying to turn change and transformation and shared values and OKRs and things into an experience that is culturally based that that can be an issue because you can have a leader who is vulnerable and empowering and drives the right behaviors down into your area of the business, but then you're dealing with people in other areas of the business who may not have that same type of leadership. And therefore you get this kind of dissonance between your relationships between different people and different teams. So an adjacent team may not be feeling that sense of feeling empowered, but you feel empowered. (laughs) And so you approach and engage them on that basis and then constantly wonder, why are they not engaging? Why are they not getting it? Why are they being... And and yet they're not in the same... They're not feeling the same way that you feel, right? And And they've not been... They've not been empowered in the same way that you are. And I, I... I find that across just about every organization I've ever worked with, that you get these pockets or these silos of people who are engaged. The other thing it does create is it creates a bit of jealousy on the part of the other teams that you're engaging with because they don't feel like they've had that, that they've been given that sense of empowerment and you have, and they're a bit jealous that why are they, why do they seem to be getting so much credit and why are they why are they doing all of these things why can't we and and it just creates all kinds of chaos and mess on the when it comes to relating to our peers trying to relate to our peers it it feels it feels you've had a mix of experiences and you've had you've probably experienced a number of those different things over time how do you deal with that when you come across it it's really challenging. And actually, as you described that, that kind of notion of, of two teams that have, are living in very different experiences and how they then interact, I, I see it all the time, that friction that comes from, why is she allowed to ask those stupid questions? I, why is she getting time with somebody really senior? Because she feels empowered to go and ask for it and, and you don't. And those questions come up a lot and, and have done. I was talking earlier about this need to orchestrate change and I think the friction comes when there are people in different stages of that journey and whether it's in terms of the tools that they're using or the office environment that they're in or or the the culture that they inhabit I think that's where the friction comes so I don't have a magic wand but I would say that it's up to the laggards to catch up rather than the other way around I think it's easy to settle at the kind of comfort point where that friction is no longer happening but I don't think that's always the right thing to do and we talk about change agents being the ones that are willing to go that few steps forward the difficult thing is knowing how far forward you can go without becoming completely separated and so this kind of tension that I hold around how far can I push things that will bring people with me and not just 
cut us off from one another. And there's a judgment there and it's we don't always get it right. But I think you do have to hold that. I, I mentioned I'd come into an organisation at, at the sort of tail end of a very big change that had happened. And one of the things that I had to hold in my heart and my head a lot of times is I'd been brought in as a somebody with experience and perspectives that were new that were necessary to help the organization progress and that's super exciting and I've got a mandate to do new things but to also recognize the degree to which people were feeling maybe bruised by what had gone before and uncomfortable and and all of those a lot of the behaviors that come with that around being territorial and the negative things you if you think come at it with some compassion and you recognize why people are like that then you start to temper your approach and it's like how can I make this manageable it doesn't have to be comfortable because it it often won't be but manageable knowing how far you can push people human empathy I think comes into it it's just being able to read people and adjust your approach and just recognize that not everyone is being given the empowerment the tools the confidence that other people not everyone's great at leadership that's the truth of it. And some people who are really great practitioners find themselves in positions of leadership and aren't terribly good at empowering their teams. And you hope that in organisations they have ways of closing that gap and we have great training programmes and things like that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't come naturally to everyone. And I, I don't have a magic wand, but I think there's a lot about kind of awareness and, and compassion and, and humility and being able to adjust your approach to the the situation we've come to this exploration of leadership by framing it in a big term if you like of liminal spaces and it's a haughty way of describing the nature of change that is that has always been going on in the world but is probably more explicitly people are more explicitly aware of right now what is i'm one of the things i'm interested to understand is what is we've called this liminal leadership what's your perspective on the word liminal what does that mean to you one of the things I'm learning as we go through these interviews with people and we're evolving is like in the first interviews we started defining it for people and then saying what do you think (laughs) I was like "Mm, maybe that's not the best approach (laughs) what do you think oh thank you for agreeing when you heard that we were doing something called liminal leadership what did that word mean to you what does that evoke for you um so actually it's really aligned to what I was just saying about this kind of notion that there are people at different stages and when I think about liminality for me it's having a foot in both camps right it's we're in the process but we're neither here nor there yet and I think that probably is a really underpinning theme when I think about transformation and change in an organization is this being able to hold two states at the same time because if we'd done the change, then we would be 100% in this new world. And if we hadn't, we'd be in the old world. But actually, it's the bit in between, right? So that's how I interpret the liminal state to be in that process of trans transition. And so it's, that's the interesting, but challenging thing is being able to recognize and value how we are today, while still driving how we're going to be tomorrow the the people that I've seen create most disruption in a negative way have been the ones that have been 
too quick to let go of the past and not recognize the value of where we've come from. And so being able to have that kind of those shades of gray, to be able to hold all those things to be true, to value both things, but to recognize that we're on a journey, things are changing. But it doesn't mean that everything that came before is wrong and, and we're bringing the best of that into the future. I guess that's what first comes to mind when you mention liminality. Wow. And we've been having these conversations about levels of change. And what I think about how you've articulated that is that applies at every single level of change. So if we th- like the teams who are running something inside, deep inside an organization, there's value in how and what's been done, but there's a need for change. All the way up to the conversation about Anthropocene um, and, you know, whether even human-centered is too human-centered and we need to be more planet-centered, listening to the voices of elders and indigenous communities who've actually known far better how to... So at all levels, listening to what's gone before and adapting to what might be coming next, that works at all levels. Yeah, really like that. Something that that we ask now as we've made some changes, all of our guests is as a reflection on a conversation that we've had and thinking about where uh, Brian and I might go next. Who do you think we should be, or what questions, who do you think we should be talking to next? Even if that's a type of person or a particular person that you have in mind and what kind of questions do you think we should be asking next? This is a kind of game of tag now. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) And and honestly, I haven't thought about this. Yeah, I appreciate that's a question just thrown in there. I don't know. We've talked today a lot about leadership. I know liminal leadership, that's the kind of the title. But I wonder whether there's something around how it feels to be led through change. And I've presented some opinions stated as fact about what good leadership looks like. But actually... I'd be interested to hear from somebody who's perhaps a, a, a lower end in terms of seniority about how it feels for them and what's important for them, perhaps. Because at the end of the day, change is all about the people, isn't it? That it's that are part of it. And we talked earlier on about people feeling that change can be done to them. It's a team that sits on the side that's doing the change. How do we make it feel like it, everyone is in the change and is the change? So, yeah, I wonder about going a bit deeper down into the organization seeing how it feels from that perspective if if we get the wrong person that could be a very angry podcast episode (laughs) (laughs) maybe you need a focus group let me the right person i'm not sure but (laughs) i suppose we'd have to get to the end of it and see how we all feel (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah Let's not, yeah, we won't pick on the obvious moments of change of mass tech layoffs or things like yeah. that. I don't mean to make too much light of that, but yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting idea. What is it like to experience that leadership and that, that change? That might almost um, yeah. be a good, that might almost be a good, I, dare I say it, we've never done this, but a good group podcast. where we get a bunch of people together and have a conversation Mm -hmm. around the impacts and effects of change Mm -hmm. on people in organizations might be interesting. Almost like a round table podcast. Great. Mm. 
that is a great suggestion for us to wrap up our time together on. Bethany, thank you very much for sharing um, your story of how you've come to and evolved in leadership, your um, perspectives on change, uh, transformation in large, complex, but really important organisations um, to um, the, the future of the change that we're all going through as a society as well. Not to be skipped over the importance of that. And really interesting to hear how that's being um, um, dealt with in a considerate kind of thought through way that feels much more empowering. So that was really interesting to hear and also about the challenges of approaching that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Brian. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Living the Leaders. We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners, hear feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations, and as always, suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead. And if you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com. Thank you for listening.